Welcome back to Tapping Into Crypto, the podcast for all things cryptocurrency. Last week in the news, you may have seen that the 19 millionth Bitcoin was mined, which is a pretty interesting time for Bitcoin. It means there is only 2 million Bitcoins left to be mined across the world. And so this week, we're going to be sitting down with James Manning from Mawson Infrastructure Group that head up some pretty incredible industrial mines. We're going to be talking about the environmental impact of mining, talk about how it's changed over the last few years and how difficult it has gotten to mine now, and also touch on What's coming up for mining with a halving event around the corner and the 19 millionth just being mined? There's going to be some big changes in the industry and James unpacks exactly what they are. So whether you're a beginner, a Bitcoin veteran or just crypto curious, I am your host, Alicia Chapman, and this is Tapping Into Crypto. Welcome to the podcast, James Manning. It is so good to have you here with us. Thanks for having me. We were just chatting before we hit record about all the crazy affairs in the world at the moment, but all of this flooding that has been going on, which is not good. So good to have you here with us today and to be chatting about all things Bitcoin mining and some incredible work that you guys are doing in the space. Really looking forward to diving into it. Now, James, the first question that we ask anyone to the podcast is, what was your very first crypto purchase? And do you still have it now? No, I don't have it now. I don't know where it is. I'm in that unfortunate category of people that bought Bitcoin really early on and lost it. So um, I was living in New Zealand at the time and I since moved back and the computer that that's on was lost in a move. So yeah, it's one of those stories. Devastating. And how early did you get in? About eight years ago, I think it would have been. Yeah, Yay. so early. Heartbreaking. So we quickly move on from that. Um, did it you- wasn't a lot of money. I think I bought a thousand or fifteen hundred dollars, which in hindsight would have been a lot of Bitcoin. Get all about that. It was only a thousand dollars. Oh my goodness! And so, did your investing journey continue from there? When did you get back into it? So I sort of, you know, put it aside and didn't think about it again. And I watched it during that first really big bull run where it had an absolute tear up Bitcoin, and I frantically started looking for the device that it had it on. Um, and failed and sort of just gave up on that idea. So, you know, I was sort of always interested in it from a technology perspective, but didn't make any really big plays into the space until sort of three and a half, four years ago. So, you know, we saw an opportunity to get in on the mining side and to really, you know, commercialize in the space. And we just saw that there wasn't any really large institutional players in the place, you know, looking to do it on an industrial scale. And I traveled through the US and I met guys that were large Bitcoin miners and it on me that they really weren't that large. So I saw an opportunity there and then I traveled to China and I saw some of the opportunities in China and I, I saw those guys really pick up on it and, you know, they, they knew how to build this thing at scale. And I was like, wow, you know, there's a market from doing it at scale like the Chinese are, but, you know, in the US or in Australia at, you know, how we'd run a business. And I thought that that was where the opportunity lied. Definitely. And an incredible opportunity. And you guys are doing amazing things. For our listeners who haven't been in your business yet, can you explain just at a super high level what you do with Mawson? Kind of giving us the the why you got into it, but just letting us know what it looks like. Yeah. So we're a Bitcoin miner, essentially. But I think differently to most Bitcoin miners, we're focused on the infrastructure. And so it's Mawson Infrastructure Group. And we fundamentally see this as a, a large-scale infrastructure player focused around the energy and the data center technology behind Bitcoin mining. And where did you first start? Where was the first one that you set up? 
the first one I set up was in my office and, and that was an interesting experiment. And I bought a hundred machines from China and um, I, I didn't really appreciate the energy consumption early on. And so I plugged them all into my office and I killed the power board in my office and the main power board. And that wasn't ideal. So I ran up the road to a mate who had a bigger building and then blew up his building. And then I realized that wasn't going to work either. So I ran up to another mate and I said, listen, I've got some devices. Can I come out to your factory? And I drove out to Homebush and we set them up and tried it in his factory. And it really dawned on me when I had a large scale space with a lot of infrastructure that I had to approach this differently to the way I was thinking about approaching it. And it wasn't just a matter of buying the equipment and turning it on, which I think is a common misconception in the industry. You can buy a bunch of these computers and make money. And I, I sat down, I realized very quickly that we needed to approach this differently. We needed to work out how to build out the infrastructure to turn these things on, do it really cheaply and do it at scale. And so that's when we started looking for two things. It was like, where can we test some stuff and test it very loosely? Because we didn't really know how we we're going to do it, but we knew the regulations in Australia were really, you know, OHS, workplace health and safety design rules were there are a lot more onerous in Australia than they were in America. So Instantly, I was drawn to America for that reason. And then the second thing is just power cost. Power is so much cheaper in the US. So, you know, off the shelf, we could get far better power deals without having to haggle in the US than we could in Australia. So it made a lot of sense for us. And, you know, we came to it looking originally at utilizing distressed gas assets, but we realized very early on that that wasn't going to be the easiest route for us. So, you know, we started looking for great co-location with existing infrastructure that we could utilize on the cheap. So that's sort of how we got there. How incredible. It's such an amazing growth journey. And I think it is that that evolution, which we'll touch on, you know, how mining has changed over the last few years, especially, you know, back in the day, it was like this hobby for so many people. And you could literally, you know, plug something in and get something out of it at some stage. But it's so different now. Before we dive into how it's changed, for our listeners that are still kind of getting their head around what mining is and how it all works, can you explain at a high level what it actually is, like what we're doing when we're mining? Yeah, so the Bitcoin algorithm or mechanism is a proof of work and proof of work requires computers to collectively try and solve a mathematical equation. And essentially, you're rolling the dice all day trying to solve this problem. And so the more computers you have on the network, the more you're rolling the dice and trying to solve the problem. And the way the Bitcoin mechanism works is every 10 minutes, a block reward occurs, and that solves all the transactions that have occurred in that period. So you know, everything gets added. And that's why they call it blockchain, because as you and I transact, for instance, you add that to the next block and and that information about that transaction, you know, is added. And then someone has to prove it mathematically. And that's what Bitcoin mining is about. It's it's those computers that are essentially rolling the dice on an equation and hoping to find it. And the mechanism self-adjusts itself every 14 days so that you can ensure that it resolves this block every 10 minutes. So if more computers come on the network, it makes it a little bit harder every 14 days. If computers leave the network, it gets a little bit easier. Minusculely easier. (laughs) Not very much easier. And something that I want to also explain to our listeners before we dive in is that it has gotten harder. And it's not just because there are more people joining and in there to solve. Can you explain what the halving events are, which some people may have heard of? Yeah, so the halving is an inbuilt mechanism because it's only ever going to be 21 million Bitcoin. And so the idea is as the network gets more and more mature, it gets harder and harder to find them. But that also drives a scarcity argument. So there's 
a lot of people view Bitcoin and the utility around Bitcoin as a store of value, but the other one is for a transactional use. And so the idea is that, you know, scarcity drives value and the value of Bitcoin goes up. But to do that, you've got to slowly release what's left in Bitcoin while incentivizing the broader community, being the people that own the infrastructure, the servers like we do as miners to build out our infrastructure. And so we get paid in rewards, which are Bitcoin, um, and that's the Bitcoin mining process. But every four years, it gets a little bit harder. So the current reward 6.25 Bitcoin for every block. So it's sort of 900 Bitcoin a day is produced. And then roll forward in a couple of years' time, that will drop to 450 Bitcoin a day. So it adjusts and makes it harder and harder and harder every four years until ultimately in something like 2140, there'll be no more Bitcoin to find. But hopefully the price will have moved enough to compensate miners for running all that infrastructure. Yeah. And is that something that you've seen looking back, how difficult it's getting and how challenging it is now? What do you think that means about the long-term viability of mining? I think mining is very much a business that will continue for the long term. I don't think it's got any short-term headwinds. I think price will ultimately dictate that and how many other miners are participating. I think 2022, you'll probably see consolidation in the industry, which will make it a little bit easier as miners consolidate ownership and concentration changes. Do I think the difficulty is going to get harder and harder? No, I don't actually. I think there's a, only a limited amount of resource from an energy perspective that will ultimately get thrown at the problem. And I think you know there'll be a point at which time that miners will stop adding additional hardware. As machines become obsolete, the reward becomes lower and the economic payback becomes different. So no, I think that, that payback, the risk-reward ratio will change and people will change their view on that. That balance and that cost as well. I think that's an incredible thing to touch on because it's something that is so, in most circumstances, out of your control. So, you know, you're talking about energy costs. What these energy companies set the price as is what it is, unless you can negotiate. But something that you've done, which I want to touch on, is creating a renewable mine and using renewable energy. Can you talk us through that and the plans that you have for the future? Yeah. So, we focus on being carbon neutral across our sites and you know, a good example of that is our recent site of Pennsylvania, where we signed a five-year PPA power agreement with a really large nuclear energy group. And so we know that's 100%, you know, has no carbon and we're not, you know, admitting anything in the process of mining as a result of that facility. And that's a 100 meg facility with the ability to go to a larger scale over time. So we'll build that 100 megs out over the next quarter and we'll continue. And that was really waste energy. So that's energy that those local nuclear power plants, they're not producing and it's just surplus energy. So the incremental cost for them is not a lot to produce that extra 100 megs for them. But for us, it's, you know, hugely beneficial because we can jump on the network and, and add that power to the network. And, you know, if the network requires it, we can also curtail. So we can turn our energy off at odd points in time as the network needs it. So in an Australian context, we can, and we do this up at our site up in Byron Bay. We've got an agreement whereby come peak January when everyone's sweltering and it's sunny and the power bills are going through the roof because at 4 p.m. everyone wants to turn their aircon on simultaneously. We will literally turn off for a couple of hours and sell, leave that energy to be sold back to the grid, hopefully then reducing the local community's total power costs. So, But also it helps us manage our power costs because we get cheaper power over the term of the year as a result of giving that flexibility back to the network. And putting that in terms of like something that people can understand, how much energy are you guys using per day? If you could like relay it back to maybe houses or, or something like that. So yeah, let's talk about 100 megs because it's a nice round number. It's about 100,000 homes. Wow. So yeah, so it's a small town. That's a lot of energy. And we would do that over sort of 20, 25 acres of land and we'd have that comfortably spaced out. And we'd like to make sure that we've got good 
buffers and boundaries to our neighbours and things like that so we don't have any noise issues and you know, we, we look after the local community as part of that process. But, yeah, it is energy intensive, but largely this is stranded or distressed energy or waste energy that's not being used. And I think that's an argument that always comes up, especially when we're talking about Bitcoin and everyone gets a bit controversial about the amount of energy that it uses. And so how much do you think there is a focus now on using renewable energy as opposed to just using any energy that you can get? I mean, I think that's a really difficult one to tackle. So we're a member of a thing called the Bitcoin Mining Council in the US. And I think, and I don't quote me on the stats, but something like 60 something percent of its constituents are renewable energy based. So, you know, that energy used on quarter by quarter, 60 something percent of that's renewable. So it's Bitcoin industry, you know, at least in the US is already really, really up there as far as total energy consumption being renewable. And we're actually further ahead than a lot of other industries. You know, there are not a lot of other industries that are late 60 percent renewable, 100 percent renewable or carbon neutral in their approach. So I think, you know, as an industry, we've really got on the front foot with this issue and got ahead of the problem. And really, that's partly to, you know, offset the sceptics and the, you know, the Bitcoin sceptics that say it's a bad energy user. So I think there's that aspect. I think the other aspect is that the network provides a lot of security for their broader energy market and network. So if you've got a stranded renewable project or you've got a stranded energy asset, we can come and take up some of that base demand and make sure that, you know, renewable project is economically viable where it might not be economically viable today or tomorrow if they don't have a core user that can underpin some of their energy use. So we're definitely talking to a lot of renewables companies that are looking to produce larger scale, but they need enough to take agreement with someone that guarantees consumption of a certain amount of energy. And I think that's where the Bitcoin network are really ultimately facilitate energy and transition to, you know, a green future. And I think that's the role it can play. I think also if you look at what Bitcoin does for transactional volume and trading and transacting in Bitcoin. And we're definitely seeing this happen in places like El Salvador and South America, where it's becoming a default currency in some of these locations. You know, it does so in such an energy efficient way. I think if then when you compare it to if we added up all the banks and all the bank branches and all the bank networks and all the ATMs and everyone else that runs around them, if we add up the carbon footprint of all of those people and added them up, I think you'd find it be fairly competitive. So I've definitely seen some research done on that that suggests, you know, it's as efficient as that if you'd like to do it that way. Yeah. And I think people are so, they put so much scrutiny on crypto in general. And it's something that even with cryptocurrency, people want to understand the whole inner workings. But if you ask them to explain how money comes into their bank, they couldn't tell you. They don't know about the schemes. They don't know about the rails. They couldn't explain or articulate any of that to you, but really want to dive into and scrutinize cryptocurrency in general. And it's the same with this, I think, as well. There are so many manufacturers that use such heavy amounts of energy, but people don't question that. They just, you know, go to the supermarket or buy their car or whatever they're doing. Whereas this, again, it's the first thing that people debate. Have you thought about how much energy YouTube uses and for what utility or value? And if you look at the footprint of YouTube, or if you look at the footprint of Instagram and Facebook, and you say, well, what actual utility is it providing society? At least with Bitcoin, we can have an argument. It's a, it's a way to transact and monetize transactions and interact with people for, you know, monetary gain or benefit and so forth. So I think it has huge value from that perspective and can really replace the way we traditionally think about transacting with people. Yeah, definitely. There's so much scope here. And I love the fact that you actually give the energy back and look for ways that you can really support communities as well. Because I think that's something that really hasn't been spoken about or even suggested as ideas with other mining companies. So it's really cool that you guys are doing that. 
Yeah, it's really important and it's really interesting to be part of a community and say, hey, what can we do for the community locally? And Sandersville, which is our first large site in the US, is in a small town and we've really become part of that community. And I was over there a few weeks ago and we were sitting there with everyone. We did the grand opening, we did ribbon cutting, we had great dinner with the mayor and all the people and you know, we're driving jobs into the community. We're supporting the local hospitals. You know, we've, we've done Thanksgiving. We gave away turkeys. We've given away Christmas trees. We've done a lot of this really grassroots stuff. We're just putting a dog park there with the old fence that we pulled down from a temporary site we did. We donated that to build a dog park. So, you know, it's really being part of the community. They rang us up and they said, Hey guys, I know you're pulling down this fence. What's your use for? And we don't really have a use. And they're like, could we build a dog park? And we're like, not only can you have it for a dog park, we'll come build it for you. So. You know, just really great community things. And it really then shows when you have an issue, you know, that they'll all pitch in and help you. And that community spirit's really, really nice. That's so cool, James. I think the other thing that we really wanted to touch on as well, especially with you and your expertise, is that there are becoming more and more projects and more and more assets are really focusing on proof of stake and moving to proof of stake instead of proof of work. What are your thoughts on that as an alternative to proof of work? I think proof of stake has a lot of merit. And obviously, you're seeing that with Ethereum, that transition. And I think there's lots and lots of merit around this. It is a mechanism. But again, like everything, it can fall in the hands of few and it can ultimately be railroaded. And and I think as you see the evolution in Bitcoin, things like ETFs coming around and you see, you know, there's some large funds growing like the Grayscale Bitcoin Trust and so forth. They have a lot of Bitcoin and, you know, these ETFs are starting to accumulate a lot of Bitcoin. And then you've got to sit there and say, well, if that was a proof of stake universe, they would then suddenly be deciding on consensus mechanism. And do you want a fund manager making a decision about the way a cryptocurrency ultimately transacts? And, and I think one of the great things that proof of work does and the original Bitcoin white paper was about having it distributed across enough people that those decisions couldn't be influenced by one. And I think proof of stake ultimately, and that hasn't planned out this way, but I think one of the, you know, the counter argument to proof of stake is that if you have concentration, you could have risk on the other side. And in proof of work, that's the 51% attack argument that everyone talks about. You know, if you've got 51%, but the scale of proof of work mining is so large that the amount of computing power and resource you'd need to get a 51% attack today is actually really, really high. Whereas in proof of stake, people could accumulate it and you could wake up with a few financial institutions ultimately making decisions for a network. And I don't think that's a great outcome. So do I think that's going to happen? Probably not. But, you know, it's obviously a risk that's on there. And I think that's always a risk with these sort of things that, you know, you do start to see groups of people controlling, you know, outcomes on these things. And that's less than desirable from my perspective. If it's your coin, you you want your outcome on it. Yeah. And I think it's a discussion that hasn't been had that often around proof of stake and, you know, really the pros and the cons of it. And it brings a lot of differentiation to a project, but there are those downsides that you need to just have your eyes open. Um, I have no idea off the top of my head, but would you know, looking at all of the large scale miners, who would have the biggest share and, and how much that would be in the Bitcoin space? Yeah, so I think the largest at the moment is probably either Marathon or Core. And Core Scientific have theirs in the combination of their own self-mining as well as hosted. So they have equipment for you know, both them and their clients, probably one of the largest pipelines, but you know it's not all on. But they'd definitely be up there as far as mining equipment online and available. But again, you know, this is Marathon's a great example. It's a approximately $3 billion plus US company. And it might only represent a few percent of the global network hash. So that risk, even though they're the largest listed miner in the world at the moment, or they'd be up there as one of the largest them and core, you know, the risk of 
concentration is actually really still quite low. And that's what I think is great about proof of work. Yeah, definitely. That's so cool. And going back to energy, what do you think, you talk a lot about going 100% renewable. What do you think it's going to take to get us there? Look, I think as a business, we've got to a point where we're looking at only carbon neutral projects now. You know, we're really not that interested in taking on a new project that is dirty fuel, unless there's some really good program or offsetting program that can get us there. But it has to make sense. So we're not looking at building out new facilities that aren't green, for want of a word. I think talking to a lot of other miners, they're already on that bandwagon as well. So they're all very alert to new projects. Look, there's some actors in the industry that don't care. And They'll just pursue the cheapest energy costs no matter what. And whether that's dirty or not, I don't think they care. But look, there's those parallels in all sorts of other industries. There's guys that are still willing to invest in a coal mine today or a, you know, a coal-fired power station. There's, there's always an investor in the space and they're always going to be willing to look at it and put aside you know, the carbon or the climate arguments. So will the entire industry go to 100%? I don't believe it will, but I think enough investors are going to demand that the industry is green enough that it'll get to a point that it's comfortable. Yeah. And I think that's across the board, right? Like everybody in crypto needs to play their part. Like I'm learning myself about carbon neutrality. SwiftX have just become the first Australian crypto exchange to be carbon neutral. So they've just become accredited. But learning what's involved with that when doing research for this podcast has just blown my mind. Like there is so much behind becoming carbon neutral. Would you feel comfortable explaining just at a high level, like what it actually takes to be carbon neutral? Yeah, so it's the totality of all your energy inputs and, and use. So it's not as simple as just looking in the case of a miner as our energy bill and saying, hey, where's your outcome from it? And in our case, that's actually really easy. So we can go to Pennsylvania and say, we ended in a power contract that's guaranteed to be carbon neutral. So we know our energy is good there. But it's all the other little pieces of the puzzle. So it's your office, it's your travel, it's your freight and logistics. So How do we move a mining machine from China to America? What's the associated inputs um, attached to that? You know, if it went by sea freight, what was the boat's carbon footprint? If it went by aeroplane, what's the aeroplane's input? So, you know, you've got to add up and you can estimate with a fairly high degree of certainty what your entire business footprint looks like. And then having had a look at that footprint, you can sit there and say, this is what it is and this is how I offset it. So a lot of things you can't offset day to day. So how I got to work is really hard to, you know, offset. So that's where you have to utilize things like credits to ultimately get there. But, you know, you can do that as a business holistically at the end of the year. And, you know, we've got a strategy where we hedge through the year. So we office the people, the movements, the freight, logistics, all those things. So we continually try to audit and and offset it at the end of the year. And I think going back to the fiat system as well, and we were drawing parallels before, just thinking about the commutes to work and how many people are commuting to work. Like it's something that, again, before I did this research, had no idea that you had to take that into consideration. There's so many people. And with this mining, it's it's so different as well. Yeah. And, you know, we build out in the local community. So, you know, we've got local employees and, and so their transport routes are different. But, you know, we still have to move equipment from China to the US. And you know, I'm based in Sydney and our mines are all in the US. So my travel to and from the US that I've got to offset and there's just carbon impacts everywhere. So, you know, sure, you can jump on your Qantas flight and you can tick the box and pay a little bit extra and offset your flight. And, you know, we do those sort of things, but it, it all adds up at the end of the year and you've got to you've got to make sure that you've bought the associated credits to offset it every year. Yeah. And I think bigger than that, like the, the work that you're doing with the energy sourcing as well, like not just throwing money at the problem, which we see so many companies do now as well, really figuring out how can I fix this deep-rooted cause as well. Yeah, and I think for us, it would be very difficult to be, say, coal-fired and then offset every year. 
And I know that's an argument that a lot of guys are going to put forward over the next few years. And I think the whole ESG community is aware to this issue. You can't have a, a long-term power contract with a dirty fuel source and say, well, I just buy enough credits, so it's okay. And so I think genuine ESG investors are really cottoned onto that and, and they'll pull that out long-term. And I think what it ultimately means is your cost of capital should go down over the medium term as people say, well, look, we know you've got better margins because you don't have to offset your power. You're not buying so many credits, so your operating margin's better because you operate more efficiently long-term. So you know, I think that'll flow through over the medium and long-term, but I think day one, it, it's a little bit harder sometimes to you know, communicate that and get all the credit for all that work. Yeah, and have people who are on that journey thinking of the bigger picture as well, like actually the environment and the impact that we're having on these communities. And, you know, we spoke before about the flooding, like there's so much happening in the world. If we can all play our part to do a little bit of good, it goes a long way. Okay, so James, with all that you're doing and all that you're seeing every single day, where do you think the future of this is going to go with mining? Oh, that's a great question. Where does the future go with mining? I think I think the next hardening is going to be a really interesting event because I think what we typically see is a lot of volatility around price at that time. And I think there's a lot of larger players in market that will be very comfortable rolling through that. But I think there's probably a lot of smaller marginal players that might not be adequately you know, capitalized and their balance sheets might not be great. So I think there'll be a real opportunity in a couple of years' time to pick up some mining and mining infrastructure that, you know, isn't necessarily most efficient or best in class or best operated. So I think the industry will see a period of consolidation and it's grown so rapidly and there's investors have supported the space so quickly. And you know, I think this year everyone's going to really be looking to, I guess, the industry to say, well, you've all promised great returns. Are you going to deliver them? And I think our recent results show, you know, I think I was reading a Canada Fitzgerald note, we're only one of only three miners with positive net cash flow by their analysis. So, you know, there's a lot of miners out there spending cash and promising things, but not necessarily delivering returns. So I think 2022 will be a year of returns. And I think people will have to deliver on what some of their promises. And I think that'll be very interesting. And then then we'll see how investors rate and, and look at companies in this space based on you know what they're actually doing from a returns profile. And then those businesses that are well run, I think, will come out to the top into 2022 and bringing a 2023. I think investors will really start to consider where they want their dollars spent in the space and who they want to back in the space. And I think that will start to really, you know, separate the boys from the men, so to speak. Yeah. And and we all know from our discussion at the start, but also like if you've tried to do this personally, no matter how many solar panels you have or what you try to do, there's not much chance of being involved in an individual scale if you're trying to mine yourself now. How can people get involved? If they're really interested in this, and they really want to back the tech and get involved. What can they do? So uh, from an Australian perspective, it's actually really difficult. So I think the best way to do it is you can either jump on and buy some shares in one of the existing miners. They're all US or European based. And so that's a little bit more difficult. Domestically, there's, and I'm going to give myself a shameless plug here. We have a product listed on ChaiX called Digger, the Digital Miners Index, which tracks the largest miners in the world. And it's just an ETF that tracks those miners. So you can go and buy one digger share and get a pro rata share of a whole bunch of miners. And, and that works really well. So that's a great way of, you know, getting exposure to the space. I mean, you can always buy a miner online and, and, and plug it in your, in your garage. I mean, that's an interesting experience. It's nothing like waking up to what sounds like a uh, jet taking off in your garage. But look, I'm very aware there's, there's a whole community doing that. And definitely a lot of guys that are looking to try and do that compared with their solar. 
systems and, and using them when they're out of the house. So when the sun's on, it's on. And when they get home, they get, turn them off. And, and that's an interesting idea just unto itself. So, you know, but they're loud and then they're, they're not very convenient to own and they're entertaining if you had one in your house, because I've definitely had them in my house and I got told to turn them off pretty quickly. So mining's got to a scale that I, I think it really has to be industrial scale if you want to do it. I, it's really great to say you're going to do it at home. And unless you're a true hobbyist and, and you're really devoted to the cause, it's probably not the greatest idea. I, I hate to break it to people out there. So you're just better to back the equities, I think, in the space and get your exposure that way. And you know, there's always opportunities on that basis. Yeah. And I think we often talk about it on the podcast, you know, growing up, my dad was one of the OG miners. So back when you could actually do stuff when you were mining and we had all the solar panels and every time I went to see him, there was a new rig and it took over the shed and it was the loudest thing. It actually sounded like he was living at the airport. But that return, as you said, you know, it's difficult. You've got to be pretty creative with the projects that you look at or or how you try to get into it to get any type of return that kind of offsets how much you're spending on electricity, even if it's solar. Yeah, it is. And so, you know, we've got a set of very disciplined return metrics that we have to follow. And that dictates, you know, what projects get up from a CapEx perspective, you know, location, power-wise, how we're going to build the facility and what equipment we're going to put in it. And I've got a whole team behind me that really manages that out now. And, you know, it's very disciplined. And it's, it's not like when your dad did any border rig and... You know, when I first started doing, you know, we just bought a rig and turned it on. We're like, oh, wow, it works. You get Bitcoin. The days of just trying it out have really, you know, sort of gone by the by. And there's some great online calculators. You can sort of run the math on it yourself. And, you know, you sit there and it looks attractive. But the reality of running these things at scale is very, very different. And, you know, it's a very different operation. Running two or three at home is very easy. If you decide you want to go run 50,000, it's a very different scale operation. Oh, for sure. And even just the equipment upgrades, like, you know, because it's getting more and more difficult, like the level of tech that you need, it is so complex now, as we touched on at the start. It's just something that, you know, personally, guys, I I wouldn't be putting one in my house anymore. (laughs) But James, um, one of the projects that I love the most, and I think our listeners will love checking out as well, is one that's close to home, your Byron Bay project. Can you let us know a little bit more about that? Okay. So a bit more information about our Byron Bay project. We partnered with Crimbook Infrastructure Partners, which is one of the world's larger renewable and green energy infrastructure funds. So they own a whole bunch of renewable power stations all around the world. And one of them was up in a little town called Kodong, which is just outside Byron Bay. And it made a lot of sense for us. So it's got our modular container design that we can co-locate on site. And so it's a behind the meter arrangement with great renewable energy. It's 100% federally accredited renewable energy location. So we know the energy is good. And, you know, it's a great location to be located up there. It gives me an excuse to get away from Sydney and, and have a couple of days in the sun and go see some miners every now and then. And, it's you know, it, it's a great location. And we've got these miners up there. And our relationship with Quimbrook has been fantastic. So they're an awesome business partner. And they've got, you know, a couple of gigawatts of renewable energy. And we're looking at other sites with them where they've got renewable energy projects that they need an anchor tenant to basically underpin the project. So I think that's where we provide a huge opportunity for them on the other side as well. We'll pop everything to find you in our show notes as well. So people can go check out the company, see what you guys are doing, read the reports, which is super exciting. But thank you so much for joining us today, James. It's been epic having you on and to chat about all things mining. Awesome. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for joining us for today's show. If you liked it, don't forget to head over to the gram and join us at Tapping Into Crypto. And before we finish up, just a general disclaimer that this podcast is for entertainment purposes only. And the opinions on this podcast belong to individuals and are not affiliated with any companies mentioned. Any advice is general in nature and does not take into account your own personal situation. 
If you're looking to get advice, please seek out the help of a licensed financial advisor. We'll talk to you soon.